0: We continue our uh, failure and faithfulness series this morning. This is a series for those of you who are visiting that we're doing during Lent. That's focused on people from Scripture who are called by God, but who somehow managed to fail in some really profound way, and how God still shows his faithfulness even through those times of failure. And today's failure is Eli. Uh, his story is found in the first four chapters of the book of 1 Samuel. So our reading will be from 1 Samuel 4, right at the end of his story, which is verse 12 through 22. And you can turn there right now, um, found on page 421 in your pew Bibles. I'm not going to read this story until halfway through my sermon. And, and I'm going I'm, I'm to wait that long because I'm not confident that you all know the story of Eli all that well. I think many of you know the name. Some of you know his story pretty well, but if you really want to understand the failure and, and the full impact of it and how it speaks to us, you really got to know the fullness of his story. So before we get to that, I want to, I want to give a full orbed picture of, of who this man was. And let me start by saying, as I studied this story this week, I really like Eli. I like him, he's a good guy, he's a good dude. I would like to hang out with Eli. And in that, he's a sharp contrast with last week's person, Samson. I don't think I would enjoy hanging out with Samson. I don't know about you. Um, I don't think he would be pleasant company, right? He's he's vain. He's vengeful. uh, He seems very self-interested. That's not Eli. Eli's not perfect. We'll see that. But he seems like a kind-hearted, good-intentioned man. Um, and I, I'll do, just to give you a sense of that, I want to show you just a few places in his story where he comes out and he, he looks like a good guy. So we first meet him right at the beginning of 1 Samuel. And he's a high priest, right? He's the high priest who serves in the tabernacle, which at that time was in Shiloh. And so we see him serving there, and he's sitting at the door at the entrance to the tabernacle. And he's watching the worshipers come in and out. And one of the worshipers there is a woman named Hannah. And Hannah is fervently in prayer. She's fervently in prayer because she hasn't been able to have any children. She's getting more advanced in age and she just hasn't been able to conceive. And she's praying fervently and she's really animated, so animated, that Eli thinks she's drunk. And so he goes over to her and says, put away your wine. And she gets up and says, oh no, that's not not going on at all. And she explains. And here's the first place where I kind of like Eli. He doesn't get defensive. Right? He makes no protestations. He immediately admits that he's wrong. He says, oh, sorry. And he turns his accusation into blessing. Right? He immediately says, may the Lord bless you and give you what you are praying for. Which I think is, is kindness, right? Kindness. And then the Lord does give Hannah what she's praying for. She has a baby. His name is Samuel. The whole book is named after him. And she's so grateful for what the Lord has done that she brings young, probably a toddler, Samuel, to the temple and puts him in Eli's charge, dedicates her to the service of the Lord in the temple. And this is Eli's second kindness. Eli takes this boy in, right? Essentially fosters him, raises him as his own. There's a tremendous amount of work he takes on and he does it willingly. And he seems to do it well, because if you remember the most famous story from the Samuel narrative, when Samuel hears that voice in the middle of the night and doesn't know what it is? Do you remember who he runs to? Eli, right? He tries to figure it out, he goes to Eli. That shows he trusts the man. And Eli says, well, next time you hear that voice, it's probably the Lord. Say, speak, Lord, for your servant listens, okay? So the picture you get in that story is a kindly old man and a boy who have, have love and trust between them, right? And then there's this, which is lesser known, Hannah comes back to visit her son every year at the temple, which you would expect. And every time she comes back, Eli goes out of his way to say hi to Hannah and talk with her. And in fact, Samuel tells us he blesses her and says, may you have many more children after Samuel. And she does, she has five more kids. So every time she comes to the temple, he acts like a pastor to her, right? So you get this picture, nice guy, good guy, not perfect, but a decent dude. Now, Eli's sons are a different story. They are neither nice nor kind. Maybe you remember their name, Hophni and Phinehas. And Eli's a high priest in the tabernacle. Hophni and Phinehas are priests. They are in his employ. And they don't use their priesthood for service. They use their priesthood for, for personal gain. They, they, um, they skim off the top. So people have to bring offerings to the temple. And one of the offerings they bring is meat. The meat is supposed to be put on the altar. And when it's sacrificed to the Lord, the fat is supposed to burn off as a fragrant offering to the Lord. And then there's always some left over and that's for the priests. Well, Hophni and Phinehas, they're men who like a good steak. And they know that the best steaks, and you know this too, are the ones with fat in it, man. They're the ones that have good marbling. And so they, when the people come with their offering, they intercept them before they put the offering on and they take the best of the meat with the fat for themselves, which they're not supposed to do. And if the, uh, the person offering the offering is, is pious and says, well, that's not how it's supposed to go, then they get their well-muscled servants to threaten them so that they can have this meat. And not only that, they use the sort of the influence and power of their position to seduce women at the gate of the temple. So just in all respects, they're not really good guys and everybody in society knows it. Everyone knows that they're not doing well and they're not doing right. And Eli knew it too. And eventually he confronted them. Why do you do such things, boys? It's not only a sin against the people that you're strong-arming, it's a sin against God. This is not good, you shouldn't do it. But Ophni and Phinehas ignore their dad. They just keep right on doing what they are doing. And here's where Eli fails. Here's where Eli definitely falls short. He doesn't stop them. He's the high priest, they're the priests. Presumably, he has the power to fire them. He doesn't do any such thing, he just lets them go. He's indulgent, he is lenient with them. The Lord sees all this, and the Lord is not lenient. God sends a nameless prophet in chapter 2. And that prophet confronts Eli with the wickedness of his house and pronounces a terrible judgment. If you read it, it's it's quite forceful. And he says, the house of Eli will fall. The priesthood will be taken away from you. Your sons will die on the same day. And all your descendants will struggle, will be under a curse, says this prophet. Thus saith the Lord. Which brings us to our chapter. Often and Phinehas are still misbehaving. They've once again pushed the boundaries. This time they pushed the boundaries because they've taken the Ark of the Lord as a tool for battle. Um, They've gone into battle with the Philistines and they've taken the Ark with them like the Ark is some sort of magic wand. Like you can use it to twist God's arm and get on your side. And uh, it doesn't go well. Philistines win the battle and they take the Ark into custody. And that's the point where we see the end, the fall of the house of Eli, starting at verse 12. That same day, a Benjaminite ran from the battle line and went to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he arrived, there was Eli sitting on a chair by the side of the road, watching because his heart feared for the ark of the Lord. When the man entered the town and was told what happened, the whole town sent up a cry. Eli heard the outcry and he asked, what is the meaning of this outroar? The man hurried over to Eli. He was 98 years old and whose eyes had failed so that he could not see. He told Eli, I've just come from the battle line. I fled from it this very day. What happened, my son? Eli asked. The man who brought the news replied, Israel fled before the Philistines, and our army has suffered heavy losses. Also, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. When he mentioned the ark of God, and this is, again, another little point in Eli's favor here. I'm sure he's devastated about his sons, but what really provokes his emotion is the loss of the ark, right? So he's sincere in his faith. When the messenger mentioned the Ark of God, Eli fell backwards off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died. For he was an old man and he was heavy. He'd led Israel for 40 years. His daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and near the time of her delivery. When she heard the news that the Ark of God had been captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she went into labor and gave birth was overcome by her labor pains. And as she was dying, the women attending her said, don't despair, you've, you've given birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay attention. She named the boy Ichabod, saying, the glory has departed from Israel because of the capture of the ark and of the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. <clears throat> uh, that's, I, th- I mean, I think you'll agree that's a, a really dark and terrible ending for who has otherwise been a pretty decent guy. One moment, Eli hears that his whole life's work has come to an end, his two boys have died and the ark of God that he's given his whole life to protecting has been taken into custody, and perhaps has been lost forever, as far as he knows. The next moment, he falls from his chair, and he lines an old man humiliated in the dust, his neck snapped in a horrible position. And then, as if that weren't enough, when his daughter-in-law hears about what's happened, she goes into labor, the labor kills her, and as she dies, she gives a dark name to her child, his name will be Ichabod, which means the glory is departed. And how can you blame her from wondering if that's not just what has happened? Eli seems like a better person than Samson, right? Eli seems like he deserves a better fate than this. Samson gets to end his life with a, with a great and glorious victory. Yes, he dies, but he wins this glorious victory and Israel celebrates him. Eli's life ends with a whimper. Samson, you'll remember, gets in the, in the Faith Hall of Fame in Hebrews 11. Eli gets dust and humiliation and ignominy. Why is that? Why does this pretty good guy get such a strong judgment? What is it that brings the judgment of God so heavily on his head? I've been thinking about that a lot this week, trying to figure it out. And I think there are two reasons, two things that I would point to why Eli receives such strong judgment in this passage. One of the th- reasons has to be, one of the, Eli's main failures has to be complacency. Right? I think we can all agree Eli is complacent in this passage. Samson's sins were sins of appetite. Samson's sins were sins of actions. Eli's sins were sins of inaction. Sins of omission, we call them. He was not punished for what he had done, he was punished for what he had left undone, right? That was in our prayer of confession this morning. It's neglect, it's hesitancy, it's the things he did not do. And specifically, the things he did not do were to take care of his boys and to supervise his kids and make sure they shaped up. Eli knew, of course, what they were doing, and yes, he chastises them, as we said, He doesn't go all the way and fire his kids. Why is that? Why doesn't he do that? Why doesn't he come down harder and his boy and follow through? It's hard to say, the, the, the scripture doesn't tell us, the text doesn't tell us. Possibly it's because what his wife would say and what his family would say. The rest of Israel will be fine with him getting rid of those two priests, but his wife maybe wouldn't like how bad it looked for his family, who knows? In any case, he tries to have it both ways tries to keep his boys in their position and lead Israel and be a high priest. People complain and he wags his finger at his boys. But by that time, both Hophni and Phinehas realize, hey, if we just sit here and wait for dad to finish his speech, he's never going to do anything. And besides, truth be told, Eli likes the idea of being invited to his son's barbecues. They had the best barbecues in town and Eli liked a good steak even though his wife said it was starting to make him a little heavy. That's complacency, right? That's a picture of complacency that we see in Eli. Complacency, if you're complacent, it doesn't mean you don't love God or that you don't have good intentions. It's just that there's all kinds of other stuff out there, fun things, and you want to do those things. You don't want to miss out on those things. When we're complacent, we go through life with great intentions, but so-so disciplined and weak follow-through. You know, honey, we got to get more intentional about family devotions. We really got to do better with that. We've just fallen out of the habit. Yeah, I agree. You know, well, maybe after volleyball's done, we'll get around to it. Maybe. I really should do some volunteer work down at the shelter. That's really important. I get involved in those things. Yeah, that's a great idea. But you know, I got my golf league, and you know, I I, uh, grandkids' baseball games two nights a week. We really gotta get back to church. We just keep missing one thing after another. Next week, next week we're gonna go, oh wait, we got that thing in Chicago, maybe the week after that. Now I know why I like Eli so much. He's just like me. And he's just like most of us, right? whose hearts are full of good intentions, but are also spiritually distractible, if we're honest people who are maybe a little complacent. And in our culture, that's, right? I mean, that's no big deal, right? That kind of ordinary complacency that we see in Eli, but for whatever reason, God is really serious about it in this passage and is not pleased. The second of Eli's failures is less personal and more corporate, and this is really hard to explain. So you're gonna have to work hard to stay with me, especially when we're this far into the sermon. But it's really important to see, okay? It's not just a failure of Eli, it's a failure of Eli and the rest of the people. Remember when Eli served? He served at the end of the period of the judges, right? At the end of the period of the judges. And when you do a deep reading into the first four chapters of Samuel, what you see is that in these four chapters, what God is essentially doing is rebooting his people, restarting his people after the period of the judges. If your cell phone is is locked up or your your laptop is locked up and you get the the deadly spiral of death going round and round and round and round and never stopping, what do you do? You unplug it, you press restart, you shut it down and start it all over again. What was the time of the judges like for Israel? Israel. It was essentially like a computer that was in an endless spiral, right? The people kept disobeying, they'd fall into enemy hands, God would rescue them with a judge, they'd get fat and happy, they'd fall into sin again, and they just kept going round and around and around and around. And what God is doing in this passage is he's finally sick of it, and he's pulling the plug and restarting the system. You see the sense that God is bringing the era of the judges to a close, if you pay close attention to the things that you read in those chapters. So, for example, the beginning of chapter 3, it says, In those days, the word of the Lord was rare, and there were not many visions. Suggests a kind of a, a spiritual deficit, right? And when it talks about the temple, it says that the lamp of God had almost gone out in the temple. Well, the lamp of God should never go out in the temple, but in this era, the era of the judges, it was almost out. And then think about how Eli is described. What's Eli's affliction? He's just about blind, he can't see. That's not just a physical condition, that is a spiritual condition, too. Represents the whole people, right? He's the high priest, he's a representative of all the people, he's not just a man unto himself. And then how else is he described? He's sitting on a chair both times we see Eli at the beginning of chapter 1 and in chapter 4 he's sitting on a chair because he's heavy that's an image of passivity of exhaustion so you get this constant sense of decay and then when it finally at the very end you have the birth of Ichabod and she names him the glory has left the temple as she dies you get the sense of this age coming to a terrible end and so Eli He's not simply bearing the weight of his own complacency. He is a representative of the people as a high priest. And so it's, it's, the, it's the failure of the whole age is also coming down on him in the verses that we read. Do you see how that's true? So at the same time the judge's age is coming down, you can see God raising up a new age. He doesn't, God just doesn't shut the system down. He, he reboots it. He starts something new, and that new thing is Samuel. And he starts it in the way God loves to restart things. How does Samuel start? Miraculous birth. That's God's M.O., right? He loves doing that. Abraham and Sarah, Mary and Joseph, and also Samuel. A birth that should never have happened except by the power of God. And the age of the judges that said that visions and speeches of God were rare, what happens to Samuel in his first story? Right? The Lord speaks to him. And not through a priest, but absolutely directly. And and where it keeps describing that Eli's house is withering. It's the, the text will describe Samuel as growing and flourishing and not one of his words falls to the ground, says chapter 319. When Eli topples off his chair, he's not just paying for his own sins. It's the weight of an entire age that is falling upon him and his house. And in fact, let me say this too, and from a literary perspective... You can see how these two births are set off against each other. You got the birth of Samuel, fresh, root coming out of dry ground. You got the birth of Ichabod, an emptying, two ages changing. What does this tell us? Well, it tells us that God will fulfill his purposes with or without us. And sometimes when he refills those purposes, there are lovely stories that warm our heart and are full of grace, and we love those stories. But sometimes when he fulfills his purposes, it's terrible, it's judgment. That's inescapable in this story. And, and it reminds me of what Abraham Lincoln said in the second inaugural address after the carnage of the, of the, uh, of the Civil War, and he suspected that, that was the judgment of God. He considered those judgments and he said, it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And reading this passage, that's certainly true. But I still can't help feeling sorry for Eli. This good man, this decent man, is not that different from me and not that different from you. who has such a terrible end to his life. And I wonder, where's the gospel hope in this text? Right? I can feel the fear. I can feel... God warning me about my own complacency, and I think you feel that too, but where's the gospel hope? I'm a minister of the gospel. This is a gospel church. Where is the good news in this dark passage? I thought about that a lot too, and I think, ironically, the good news in this passage is in that last words of Eli's daughter-in-law, in the name she gives to her child. As she dies, she says, Ichabod, the glory is departed. Now, who does that remind you of? Who else in scripture do you know who died a humiliating death and at the moment of death said words about the abandonment of God? That would be Jesus. Jesus went to the place of Eli. When we say Jesus died on the cross, we say he shared all our sufferings. Jesus has shared Eli's suffering because he went to a place of total humiliation and abandonment. These two stories are much more similar than you think. We said that Eli was bearing the weight of judgment of an entire age. That's Jesus too, but Jesus didn't just bear the age of the sins of the judges. He bore the sins of all of us, of all the ages came crashing down upon him. The glory has departed, said Eli's daughter in law, as the weight of the judgment of the judges came down on her. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? said Jesus, as the weight of all the sin of all the ages came down on him. But of course, Jesus wasn't just taking judgment, he was rebooting, he was restarting everything. What we human beings with our Complacency and our half heartedness, we're unable to do. God does Himself through Jesus Christ our Lord. We fail. We fall short. Our good intentions meet up with our distraction and they fall to pieces. Jesus' intentions don't fail. Jesus is not half hearted, He is whole hearted. Jesus is not complacent, He goes all the way for us and for our salvation. So is there any hope for our old friend Eli? If there is, it's in the same place that us half-hearted and complacent people find our hope. It's in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Lord, um, sometimes your word is wonderful and full of grace and just a joy to read and sometimes it's really hard and today was one of those days. Thank you, Lord, for the bracing truth of your word and thank you that even when it's hard, it leads us to the fill of the cross where we find your grace. Lord, we pray that as um, we continue to try to be your servants that you would fill up our half-filled hearts with your joy and with your passion. Amen.